Let us pray. Father Most High, You have given Your Son Jesus to be born of the Virgin Mary, to inherit the throne of David, and reign over Your kingdom forever. Father, faithful God, ever true to Your promises, we bless You for the birth of Your Son, Emmanuel. We bless You because You are with us in Him. You have revealed Yourself and Your love in His birth, in His death, and in His resurrection. And now all praise and honor be to You, O Father, with the Son and with the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for sending Your Son into the world. He is Your gift to us. In giving us Your Son, You have given us Yourself. And in the coming of Your Son into the world as one of us, the promised kingdom has arrived. And we know that the kings of the earth will bring their glory, their treasures, their gifts given to them by Christ into His kingdom. May we join with them bringing our own gifts and glory into the kingdom of Christ to be used in His service. Father, we thank You for the birth of Your Son into the world. All the hopes and dreams of the whole world came together in Bethlehem on that day He was born. May we celebrate His birth today. May we celebrate all He has done in our lives and in our world this day. We pray this giving You thanks in His name. Amen. Of course, much of the world has moved on from Christmas to focus on the new year uh, and other things. But according to the church calendar, uh, we are in the middle of the Christmas season and this is Christmas Sunday. Christmas, of course, is the annual celebration of Jesus' birth into the world. It's really a 12-day birthday party for Jesus. We celebrate this birth in a way that is unlike any other birthday celebration. We celebrate this birth in the way we do because of who Jesus is. He is God. He is God's eternal Son. He is God's eternal Son who has become man. He is the Word made flesh. He is fully God. He is fully human. Two natures in one person. As the church has formulated its doctrine of the incarnation, seeking to understand this great miracle and mystery. Jesus is God with us. He is God coming to us. He is God coming as one of us to experience the fullness of human life from the inside. And so Jesus Christ is God. He is God become man. And as the God-man, He experiences the fullness of human life. He experiences a human birth. He endures the human pains of hunger and thirst. He even dies a grotesque and terrible human death. He is like us in every way, but without sin. And because He is without sin, He can rescue us from sin. That's what His name means. Jesus, the One who gives victory over sin. He has come to rescue us, to deliver us from our sins. And so Christmas celebrates a birth. The birth of the God-man. It celebrates the birth of our Savior. And yes, it also celebrates the birth 
of our King and the coming of His kingdom into the world. See, Christmas not only changes our lives at a personal level, Christmas changes the history of the world. And that's what I really want us to consider this morning. How has Christmas changed the world? How has the birth of Jesus changed the course and shape of world history? Christ's birth 2,000 years ago changed the world. Our calendar even reflects this. Our calendar's B.C. A.D. structure reveals this. That before Christ and then in the year of our Lord structure indicates that Christ's birth is the turning point in world history. Certainly we could break up history in, uh, in other ways, in different eras and periods, and historians are certainly happy to do that for us. But the very structure of our calendar tells us the only two ages that really matter are before and after Christ's birth. That's it. His birth is the great hinge, the great turning point in all of history. We mark time now. We mark our years A.D., Anno Domini, the year of our Lord, because He is the Lord of our years. He is the Lord of history. He is the Lord of our world. He is Lord of Lords. Christ's birth means God's cosmic plan of love and goodness and grace. God's cosmic plan is now being fulfilled. The promised kingdom is breaking in. All of human life and culture is now being transformed. The nations are now being subdued and being made Christ's disciples. Some have attempted to downplay Christ's significance in history by changing the calendar. There have been different attempts to do this. The French Revolution attempted to do this. More recently, we've seen uh, people try to do this by renaming the B.C. period before the Common Era and the A.D. period the Common Era. I think we need to stick with B.C. and A.D., but really going to Common Era doesn't really change anything. Why did the Common Era start when Jesus was born? What holds it together and makes it common? It's Christ. It's Christ's kingdom. Christ makes it a common era as He unites men and nations in Himself. It's a common era because He is Lord over all. That's what we all have in common. Christ is Lord of us all. And this age of history is simply the outworking and growth of Christ's kingdom. That's what this age of history is all about. So what difference has Christ's birth and the inbreaking of His kingdom in history made? How is the world a different place because of Christmas? What difference has Jesus made in the world? What influence has Christ had on the world since His birth 2,000 years ago? What does Christ's influence on our world look like? You know, it's fashionable today to blame the Christian religion, and I'd say by extension Christ perhaps, it's really fashionable today to blame the Christian religion for everything that is wrong with the world. Christian bashing is in. Christians have become scapegoats for all the problems we face. We, Christians, are seen as oppressive, violent, standing in the way of science, opposed to freedom, as bigoted. In reality, nothing could be further from the truth. And one thing we see again and again in Scripture, whether it's in the life of Abraham or Job or in the ministry of Jesus himself, one thing we see again and again in Scripture is Satan will often use the strategy of bringing false accusations against God's people. Accusations that are nothing but lies. 
And these false accusations should be answered. They should be refuted because they are false. The truth is that Christ's birth has led to greater human flourishing than any other event in history. There's nothing like it in terms of bringing good to the human race. The truth is that no other religion or philosophy or movement has ever changed the world for the better the way Christian faith has, the way Christ and His followers have. In other words, the world is incalculably a better place because of Christmas. This is how Paul Meyer, historian, puts it, really summarizing what I wanted to say this morning. Meyer says this, Not only countless individual lives, but civilization itself was transformed by Jesus Christ. In the ancient world, his teachings elevated brutish standards of morality, halted infanticide, enhanced human life, emancipated women, abolished slavery, inspired charities and relief organizations, created hospitals, established orphanages, and founded schools. In medieval times, the Christian faith almost single-handedly kept classical culture alive through recopying manuscripts, building libraries, moderating warfare through truce days, and providing dispute arbitration. It was Christians who invented colleges and universities, dignified labor as a divine vocation, and extended the light of civilization to barbarians on the frontiers. In the modern era, Christian teaching properly expressed advanced science, instilled concepts of political and social and economic freedom, fostered justice, and provided the greatest single source of inspiration for the magnificent achievements in art, architecture, music, and literature that we treasure to the present day. Now that's not to say that Christians haven't sometimes done terrible things. Even in the name of Christ, we have. And we can't airbrush those faults away. We should confess them, those Uh, stains on the history of the church are our responsibility and we should own up to them. But that does not change the fundamental reality that followers of Christ have had a massively and profoundly positive effect on human flourishing. Too often in our day, the sins of Christians are greatly exaggerated and their glorious contributions minimized. It's time to give credit where credit is due to Christ and under Christ to his people. It's time to set the record straight. In fact, one thing that's so ironic is that many people today who attack the Christian faith, they may not realize this, that's why it's ironic, but the very freedom that they have to attack the Christian faith is itself a product of the Christian faith. The very freedom of expression and freedom of speech that permits them to castigate Christ and his followers is largely a byproduct of the Christian faith's influence that has been woven into the very social fabric of the Western world. It's kind of ironic, isn't it? Today, doing apologetics, that is, defending our faith, really includes providing a defense of the contributions Christians have made to our civilization. So much that is really the contribution of a distinctively Christian faith is now taken for granted. We've forgotten the roots of all these grand uh, freedoms and privileges that we enjoy. And so this morning what I want to do is give you something of a Christian highlight reel. 
Uh, if we did a sort of sports center of Christian history, this would be it. Uh, a Christian highlight reel. Of course, the good news of God's forgiveness through Christ Jesus will always be central. But flowing out of that good news, the Christian faith transforms all of life. Yes, it transforms our lives individually. We are new creatures now living in a new way. Our minds have been renewed. Our way of life has been renewed. That's true at an individual level. But it's also true at a social and corporate level, even a civilizational level, we could say. We are a new kind of people, a new humanity forming a new kind of culture. We read about this in Matthew 13, how the kingdom of Christ is like leaven that works its way into the whole batch of dough. That batch of dough, that meal, is human life. And the kingdom of Christ is like leaven that works its way into the whole of it to transform it, to cause it to rise. We read this morning about how Isaiah prophesied and Revelation also teaches John in his vision at the end of Revelation how the kings of the earth will bring all their treasures, all their glories into the kingdom of Christ. Well, all those treasures, all those glories are, of course, worked in those civilizations, in those cultures by Christ himself. So Christ is simply receiving his own accomplishments. He's receiving back gifts he's given to the human race as those gifts are brought in to the kingdom. But the point is, what you see in these prophecies is that Jesus came not just to change your life as an individual. So often, that's what we focus on. America is a nation largely of individualists, and so we focus on the individual. But Jesus also came to transform civilization, to create a whole new culture, a new way of life. And obviously, this process of cultural transformation is a long way from being complete. But the leavening process is ongoing and the leaven has already had a tremendous impact on the world. G.K. Chesterton could put it this way in his day. said, I believe that our civilization is not only founded on Christianity, but is in its very material and texture Christian. In other words, I believe that if there had been no Christianity at all, there would now be no such civilization at all. Chesterton is not saying the civilization he lived in was perfect, not by any means. Of course, there are all kinds of sins and shortcomings, just as there are all kinds of sins and shortcomings in your personal Christian life. But he's saying civilization as we know it, these things that we take for granted in so many ways, the benefits we enjoy, the privileges we have, this is all very much the product of the Christian faith. Jesus has changed the world for the better, and we need to understand how. So let me give you some examples of this this morning. First, Christ's birth gave new value to human life. You can't get any more fundamental or basic than this. Christ's birth gave new value to human life. We saw this last week when we looked at John chapter 1. The Word made flesh is the life of men. He is the one who gives us life. In John 10, Jesus says, I have come that they may have life and have life abundantly. That we might enjoy the fullness of all that God has to offer, all that God has designed us to enjoy in His world. Jesus is the life of the world. He is the Creator. The Father spoke the world into existence through Him. Life doesn't come from non-life. We have life. The world is filled with life only because God who has life in Himself, who has had life from all eternity, created life and gives life. Life has value only because it is God's gift. Human life is especially valuable 
because humans are made in the image of God. And so Christians came to believe and teach and practice that every human life should be valued. Now again, you need to understand how this contrasts with the culture they found themselves in. The earliest Christians lived in the Roman Empire, but they did not do as the Romans did. When in Rome, they didn't do as the Romans did. Because the Romans didn't value God's gift of life any more than other pagan civilizations had. In Rome, life was cheap. Abortion and infanticide were common. Uh, Christians knew God had honored human life not only by giving humans life in the first place, but also by entering into human life himself in the incarnation. Christians are people who value life. And this uh, made Christians distinctive in ancient Rome. In fact, it's interesting, the very first letter we have of a Christian writing to a Roman governor is not a request to end the persecution of Christians, though certainly that would have been nice, but rather it was a request to ban infanticide and abortion. Because Christians understand how horrific the slaughter of the innocents really is. That's part of the Christmas story. Herod killing the baby boys in Jerusalem, an act of infanticide. Standing up for the weak and the vulnerable is a Christian tradition which Christians learned from Jesus himself. And so the Romans often had this practice of leaving unwanted infants just out to die. Practice of just exposing them to the ailments. And of course, especially girls uh, would just be left out to die. Christians rescued these infants left out to die and raised them as their own in their own homes and at their own expense. There are no government programs to take care of these children in those days. Christians did it on their own. Because of the influence of Christians, eventually abortion and infanticide were outlawed. Child abandonment was criminalized. Christians went on from there to outlaw the violent and deadly gladiatorial games in which lives were destroyed and blood was shed for the sake of cheap entertainment. One historian puts it this way, There is scarcely any single reform so important in the moral history of mankind as the suppression of the gladiatorial shows, a feat that must be almost exclusively ascribed to the Christian church. The shedding of blood for sport, for entertainment. But what we need to realize is the shedding of blood has been foundational to every city, every civilization there's ever been. Cain shed the blood of his brother and built a city. Romulus shed the blood of his brother and built a city. Those who oppose Christendom, the city of God, those who oppose Christian civilization, need to consider carefully the alternatives. A society that does not look to the shed blood of Christ as its foundation will still shed blood. In the ancient world, cultures often shed human blood. Sometimes it was other forms of blood, say animal blood. But there will be blood. There will always be blood. There will always be sacrifice. Society cannot exist without sacrifice. And if you actually read up on what ancient societies were like, what their sacrificial liturgies were like, the blood that was shed, Christendom ends up sounding pretty good. The Aztecs and the Mayans drenched their temples with the blood of children. Rome was built on the shedding of a a brother's blood. Greco-Roman temples were drenched with other forms of blood sacrifice. The Colosseum ran with the blood of humans whose lives were considered worthless. 
You know, some historians would actually argue that Christendom, Christian civilization, really began in the West in the 4th century when Constantine won a tremendous military victory. And then because he had heard the gospel from Christians and supposedly had uh, some sort of Christian vision, after he won this tremendous military victory, refused to do the customary thing that emperors would always do, he refused to offer sacrifice to Jupiter. He refused to offer a blood sacrifice to the pagan god. Instead, he prayed to the triune god in Jesus' name. A bloodless sacrifice in the form of a prayer of thanksgiving. Not long afterwards, he outlawed all pagan sacrifices, human or otherwise. Constantine realized true civilization, a civilization of love and peace, could only be built on the shed blood of Christ. There's no other foundation. Only the once and for all sacrifice of Christ could serve as a foundation, a cornerstone for building a true civilization of love and peace. Societies are always spiritual and liturgical at heart. And if it's not the spirit of Christ, if it's not the liturgy of Christ, that society will be violent and unjust. Because that society will not value human life. Christians brought new value to human life by looking to Jesus. Now, there are other ways that the influence of Jesus has played out in history. Consider this. During Jesus' earthly ministry, he elevated family life to new heights. He gave the family structure new dignity and new meaning and new purpose. Marriage in the ancient world was more often a union of property than persons. And the wife, quite frankly, was usually considered a piece of property, part of that property being transacted in the marital union. Sexual depravity was widespread. We even see in the New Testament, pagan temple prostitution was normal. Homosexuality, pedophilia, bestiality were all common. Women were treated as second-class humans at best, as subhuman at worst. Polygamy was widespread. I could go on and on listing the depravities. But into this kind of sexually depraved culture, Christians came with a radically different set of convictions and practices. And so Christians insisted that the family is God's good creation. And every member of the family has rights and dignity and should flourish. The family should serve the good of all its members. Christians insisted that marriage be honored and the marriage bed be honored. They denied divorce for frivolous reasons. This was a matter of dispute, not just among pagans, but among Jews. Christians denied divorce for frivolous reasons. They reserved sex for marriage between a man and a woman where it could serve as the covenant glue that would bind together their common life as one flesh and also help create a context where children could be raised with committing and engaged and loving mothers and fathers, bringing them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Children not seen as a nuisance, but as a blessing. In fact, this is one of Jesus' greatest contributions, is in the realm of childhood. Jesus transformed how children were viewed. Jesus gave us a different way of viewing and valuing children. Previously, they had just been seen as a nuisance and as a burden. Jesus, And you see this with Jesus and his disciples. But Jesus took the children up into his arms and blessed them. He said, if such is the kingdom of God. 
He said to enter into the kingdom, you must become like this little child, presenting children as an example or model for adults. Even Jesus' disciples who knew the Jewish scriptures and perhaps therefore should have known better were shocked by this. They did not know how to prize children in this way. Jesus invented childhood, essentially. He invented childhood as a period of life that should be enjoyed by children and by their parents alike. He invented childhood as a period of life that should be appreciated, a time full of wonder and blessing. You don't have that in the ancient world. That's not how children are viewed. They're either playthings for adults or they're just a nuisance who get in the way, who are burdens. Likewise, throughout his earthly ministry, Jesus treated women with a respect and compassion that had never been seen before, that shocked even his closest disciples. Think about some of the encounters Jesus has with women. Jesus with the woman at the well in John chapter 4, where his disciples are shocked that he's interacting with a woman uh, as as if she has value and, and, and worth. Or Jesus with the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8 where he uh, protects the woman uh, from what would be clearly a miscarriage of justice. These kinds of encounters that Jesus had with women were completely transformative. In a world where women were uh, not treated with respect and not regarded as uh, equal to men in any way, Jesus treated them in a sense as peers. He treated them as if they had value. Because of Christ's kingdom, the status of women was raised. Over time, laws and customs changed. So just to give you some examples of how this worked out, women could could divorce uh, on the same grounds as men. Divorce was really just a one-way street in most cultures of the world. Uh, And Jesus said, no, women have legal rights as well. The teaching of Jesus led in this direction. Women could inherit property. Uh, Women could be educated. Women could serve as witnesses in court. How important, how significant is it that the first resurrection appearances of Jesus were to women who would not have normally been allowed to testify in a court? He gave to women a dignity unheard of in other cultures and cultures not influenced by Jesus What do you find? You find things like a sexual double standard. Most every culture in the world that has not been influenced by Jesus has a sexual double standard where women are held to one standard and men another. Women are expected to be chaste and are valued accordingly, but men are not. There is no such expectation for men. Jesus comes along and says, no, you men are accountable for your sexual faithfulness right down to your thought life, and you can never blame a woman. It's your responsibility to be chaste even in your thoughts. Because of the influence of Christ's kingdom, eventually things like homosexuality, pedophilia, and prostitution were outlawed in the West. Because these are all forms of using and abusing people, using and abusing people's sexuality. And I would say the reversal of these laws, the legalization of these things, the fact that these things are no longer being suppressed in our culture as they once were, is due to the decline of Christ's influence in our culture and is something that should greatly concern us. The Christian faith has protected women in ways not known outside of Christianized cultures. And so in places like India, men could beat their their women without consequence. Uh, Clearly, that's not something that would be allowed in a culture influenced by the Christian faith. In fact, in India, up until British missionaries helped to end the practice, 
When a woman's husband died, she had to end her own life as well. Widows would throw themselves onto the funeral pyres of their husbands. Because in the Indian religion, the Indian way of looking at reality, a woman had no value. She had no worth, no reason for living apart from a man. But in cultures where Jesus has had influence, widows are honored and cared for. 1 Timothy 5.3, in the spirit of Jesus, Paul says, honor widows. Widows are living lives that are worthy, that are worthy of honor and respect. To us, that sounds kind of normal, but it's radical historically considered. One historian claims the birth of Jesus was the turning point in the history of woman. Many women today, no doubt, despise the Christian faith because they uh, see it as patriarchal. Uh, They despise male headship and see it as oppressive. But in truth, the Christian faith is the best thing to ever happen to women in the whole history of the world. And when the Christian design, the biblical design, the design that Jesus taught and reinforced, when that design is lived out, it serves the flourishing of men, women, and children all together. The influence of Jesus has transformed the practice of compassion. Wherever his kingdom goes, deeds of mercy follow. We need to understand, pagans did not typically care for the poor, at least not outside of their tight family circle. Generosity was not considered a virtue by most pagans, any more than, say, humility. They didn't consider humility a virtue either. Modern-day liberals might reject the Christian faith, But they have been deeply influenced by Jesus all the same. And you see it in their desire to help the poor. They have unknowingly internalized at least certain aspects of Jesus' teaching on compassion. Just compare Jesus with, say, Plato. Plato, the Greek philosopher, said that the poor and slaves who are no longer able to work should be left to die. Because they can't serve their masters, they can't make some kind of contribution, they should be left to die. Their lives are worthless. Despising the poor was typical in Greco-Roman society. Why is there so much in the New Testament about caring for the poor? Because nobody else was going to do it. Or to give you another example of this, in ancient Japanese religion, the priests would not allow the rich to help the sick and needy because it was considered offensive to the gods. The gods had made these people poor and sick so they would die. And to seek to help them is to go against the will of the gods. They're not worthy of help. Because of Jesus' impact, Christians insisted on caring for the poor, the needy, the aged, the sick. While ancient Greeks certainly took an interest in medicine, the hospital as a place of caring for the sick and seeking to heal the sick was a distinctively Christian invention. Going back to the 4th century, Basel. Uh, a, a pastor and bishop in the church, invented the first hospital. There were no established medical institutions until Christians founded them. Uh, one historian says the old Roman world was a world without charity. But because of Jesus, because of Jesus' influence, that changed. Indeed, as Christian missionaries have circled the globe, what have they done? They've established hospitals. They've founded orphanages. They have started rescue missions. They've built almshouses. They've opened up soup kitchens. They've incorporated charitable societies. They've changed laws. They've demonstrated love. They have lived as if people matter. Again, we take a lot of this for granted. The truth is, it's radical. It's not the way most of the world has lived for most 
of history. Christ was a healer, and so Christians have sought to be healers as well. Christ's resurrection was proof that God cared about the body, and so we should too. We should seek to minister to people's bodies and souls. That's our calling as Christians. It's a holistic kind of ministry. Whereas Romans saw helping the sick as a sign of weakness, Christians knew God in Jesus had become weak for us, and in such weakness, true strength is revealed. And so Christians were willing to risk even their own lives in caring for the sick. You know, there's a story that one historian tells about when the plague would hit a city, all the pagan doctors would leave, and the Christians would stay and minister to the sick. And of course, when the plague was over, what do you think people wanted to do? They wanted to convert to the Christian faith because they'd never seen love practiced like this. Christians knew that even if they risked their lives in seeking to help others, they would be rewarded in the resurrection. Jesus transformed the practice of human compassion. Jesus elevated education. He was a teacher who gathered students or disciples to himself. Through Jesus, we see the importance of teaching and learning, how teaching truth enriches and ennobles and transforms human life. And so again, the university, like the hospital, is a Christian invention. There were no universities as such in the ancient world. That's something Christians gave to the world. That's one of the great treasures that we'll bring into the kingdom of Christ. Christians spread literacy, especially so people could know the scriptures, but of course not just that. But we're people of the book, so literacy is important. Everywhere the church goes, everywhere the kingdom of Christ spreads, literacy rates rise. Schools for boys and girls are founded. There's no other movement that has fostered a love for learning and truth the way the church has, the followers of Jesus. Jesus exerted his influence even in the rise of science. And this is crucial for us to see because science and Christian faith are often seen as enemies today, but that has not always been the case. Historians and philosophers of science have sometimes wondered why science and technology did not rise earlier. What was stopping the growth of science and technology from happening centuries earlier than it did? Why, say, didn't the ancient Chinese or the ancient Aztecs make scientific and technological advancements the way that uh, later happened in the West. There was nothing holding them back, but it didn't happen. Instead, science and technology arose primarily in the Christian West. It's not because people in the West were smarter. It's not because of intelligence. It's because of religion. It's because of worldview. See, science can only arise when you have certain motivations and a certain worldview in place. There are certain ingredients that have to be there for science and technology to really get off the ground. And only in the Christian faith do we find these necessary ingredients. So Christians had motivation to develop technology because of the love of neighbor that Jesus taught. Making others' lives easier is a good thing. And so Christians had a motivation for developing technology. The dominion mandate in Genesis 1 that man is called to rule over and subdue the creation was essential. That man should investigate creation and transform the raw materials of creation into something better. The Christian doctrine of vocation, that all labor, including manual labor, is good, was also critical. If you think the contemplative life is superior to the active life, the way a lot of Greek philosophers did, that just thinking about things instead of doing things with your hand is the hands is the best way to live. You're not going to get very far with science. You've got to be willing to get your hands dirty. 
But most worldviews, most philosophies for most of history have said, no, getting your hands dirty is only for the lower classes. We're not going to do that. Christians came along and said, no, working with your hands is a good thing. God wants us to get our hands dirty. God's gotten his own hands dirty. The belief in God as a creator, a creator God who rules over his world in an orderly and rational way was also key. You cannot do science in a chaotic chance universe. You're not going to discover physical laws, as it were, in a universe that's governed by chance. You've got to believe in a God who upholds the universe in an orderly way. Even something as fundamental as the distinction between God as the creator and his creation. The distinction between the good creator and his good creation is crucial since really that creator-creature distinction is what demystifies the world. The ancient world was full of magic and superstition. The Christian faith was the antidote that cleared the way for science, that cleared the way for the scientific revolution that proved itself to be the true ally of science. Without the Christian faith, superstition tends to reign everywhere. And this is why it was Christian monks rather than, say, Buddhist monks who developed technology, who, who, who really uh, started the technological revolution, the scientific revolution. And it's so interesting. This history has now been almost completely forgotten. But all the leading scientists of the scientific revolution, you can go through in every single field, from astronomy to medicine to whatever else you want to look at, Almost to a man, they were Orthodox Christians. And if you read their own personal testimonies, they will explain they were pursuing science and an understanding of the creation for the glory of God and the good of humanity. They were doing what they did because they were Christians. They were living under the influence of Jesus when they developed what we think of as modern science. Now, science has been cut loose from these roots And I think because of that, science has somewhat lost its way. It's become something of an idol for some, scientism, where science tries to explain everything and answer even questions that are really outside of the domain of science. But what we need to understand is that the scientific revolution really got off off the ground because of Jesus, because of the gospel, because of the worldview found in the scriptures of the Old and New Testament. One final example of this. Slavery. Historically, slavery has been a sad part of most cultures in the world, from the Middle East to Africa to Asia to Native American cultures. Slavery was everywhere. You look at the ancient world, most people are slaves. In fact, it's estimated at the time Jesus was born, 75% of the population of the Greco-Roman world was enslaved. 75%. Greek philosophers like Aristotle saw nothing wrong with this. They fully approved of slavery as a natural and just condition for the masses of humanity. Now, what did Jesus and his first followers, his apostles, have to say about this? It's true. Jesus and his first followers did not seek to eradicate slavery in the ancient world. They didn't set off a kind of slave revolt. And certainly, if they tried to do so, it would have led to an enormous amount of bloodshed. That's not what they did. Uh, What do you find? Paul in in the New Testament, for example, telling slaves to obey their masters and, of course, telling masters to treat their slaves with kindness. And so it seems like this may be an area where the Christian faith just sort of accommodated itself to existing realities. And to some extent that may be true, but what we need to understand is that if you look at the Scriptures as a whole, the Bible as a whole is a story of emancipation. It's a story of liberation. The central story of the Old Testament is the Exodus. 
And what is the Exodus story? It's a story about slaves being free. And then if you look at the Torah, the laws that, that follow the Exodus that God gives to his people, you've got laws that limit slavery, that regulate slavery, that are mostly aimed at setting slaves free. Uh, in the New Testament, uh, of course, the church comes into a situation where slavery is very common. But you might say Paul sets a ticking time bomb next to the institution of slavery in places like Galatians 3.28, where he says, in Christ Jesus, there's neither slave nor free. Or in his letter to Philemon, that really leans hard against the institution of slavery. And this became the Christian tradition. This is one of the great ways that Jesus and his followers have influenced the world. By the Middle Ages, slavery had been almost completely eradicated from Europe. Wherever the Christian faith spread, slaves were eventually freed. And when slavery was reintroduced in the Americas, uh, you need to know those who used the Bible to defend the slave trade and race-based slavery as it existed in the so-called New World were actually breaking with about 1,800 years of Christian history. Those in Jesus' tradition had always opposed the slave trade. So much so it was a capital crime in the Torah. Uh, contrary to America's Fugitive Slave Act, which said runaway slaves had to be returned to their masters. If you look at the Torah, runaway slaves were not to be returned to their masters. Most likely because if they're running away, it must mean they're being harmed and you would never send them back into an abusive situation. The modern slave trade was ended by Christians, not by Enlightenment thinkers. Enlightenment thinkers like Voltaire were fine with slavery, even fine with race-based slavery. It was Christians like William Wilberforce who fought to end the slave trade. Again, there's a high correlation between the spread of Jesus' kingdom and the abolition of slavery in the world. His kingdom is a kingdom of freedom. Time would fail us to explore the impact of Jesus through his people on music and art and architecture and economics and literature and leisure. But understand this. There is, there is no area of life untouched by the leaven of Christ's gospel. No area of life not influenced by Jesus. Our world has been transformed and for the better by Jesus. It's being transformed right now by Jesus. It's not completely, of course. There's much work still to be done, but still in huge ways. The influence of the gospel may seem to wax and wane in the short term, but its steady growth over the centuries is undeniable and it will continue. Because Isaiah prophesied of the increase of his government, there will be no end. His, his government's going to increase. His kingdom's going to continue to grow right down to the end of the ages, which means human life will get better and better and better. You know, at Christmas time, we sing Isaac Watts' hymn version of Psalm 98. It's going to be our hymn of dismissal today, Joy to the World. It's a hymn about the effects of Christ's birth into the world. You know, in that hymn, uh, joy to the world, we sing, Joy to the world, the Lord is come. And in one of the chorus lines, we sing, He came to make His blessings flow far as the curse is found. He came to make His blessings flow as far as the curse is found. That's what Christmas is all about. 
curse giving way to blessing. Blessing flowing out and overcoming curse. Anything the curse has touched, anything the curse of sin and death has deformed, Christ came to bless and to restore. Has the curse touched family life? Has the curse curse touched politics? Has the curse touched economics? Has the curse touched music? Has the curse, curse touched art and architecture and economics and education? Yes. That means in all those areas of life, Jesus came to bring blessing. In every area of life, Jesus came to make His blessings flow. He came that we might have life and have life abundantly. The Christian faith has been and continues to be a force for good in the society. The greatest force for good there is. And this is because the Christ we believe in and the Christ we follow, the Christ whose birth we celebrate this time of year, Christ is the source of every good thing in the world. He is the light and life of men. He is the joy of the world. He is the fount of all wisdom and goodness and truth. He's the fount of all beauty and mercy and grace. He is love. He is God's love revealed to us. He is leaven. The leaven of the kingdom. He is the leaven. Leavening the whole batch of dough. Transforming all of human life that at the last day, all the glories and all the treasures of all the kingdoms throughout the ages may be brought into His kingdom and returned to Him. All because He is the giver of every good and perfect gift. Let's give thanks together. Father, we do thank You that You have given us the perfect gift of Jesus. And in turn, He has given us all kinds of gifts through the working of His Spirit. Father, may the light and life of Jesus shine in us this season and at all times. May we be shaped and formed by His truth and by His wisdom and by His love and by His compassion that we might in turn shape our world with these same virtues, these same values. Father, we pray that You would do this in us and through us for the sake of Your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. As God's royal priesthood, let us stand for prayer. Sovereign Father, on this Christmas Sunday, we proclaim with your servant Simeon, we have seen your salvation, which you have prepared for all peoples. In the light of Christ, we see you, Father, and in Jesus, the glory of your people. Not only can we now live in peace, but we can die in peace, seeing the fulfillment of your promises. How we rejoice to hear the story of Christ's birth sung throughout all creation this season. What joy for us to sing your praises, Lord. Let us not lose our amazement of the story in repetition, but may each telling be fresh to us each time we hear, each time we sing. For indeed, Father, a new and glorious morn has broken, your word now in flesh appearing. Joyful and triumphant we greet him, God of God, light of light, begotten not created, born on earth to save us, Peace and love he gave us. All of us, sinners, reconcile to you, Father. To our delight, your Son now rules the world with truth and grace. Light and light to all he brings. He has freed us from Satan's power and might. 
His blessings flow far as the curse is found, and heaven and nature sing with joy. Christ, born that we no more may die, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give us second birth. We rejoice with heart and soul and voice that Christ has opened heaven's door, and we are blessed forevermore, Father. We no longer fear the grave, for our Lord was born to save us. And what bliss is this, that he lives to give us life forever, and nothing, nothing can sever us from him. What a blessing to know that Christ never rests until we rest with you forever, Father. And let not evil dismay us, Father. At his command, we know that all nations shall stand in judgment, robed in justice and enthroned in light, our Lord will judge. And all this for us your love has done. So we shout our love in ceaseless praise. Indeed, Father, joy to the earth, our Savior does reign. Gracious Father, as we come to the end of another year, we thank you for every blessing that has come to this congregation from your hand. For our pastor and church leaders, new elders, new deacons, teachers, musicians, for new families who have joined us here to further your kingdom, for engagements, marriages, new covenant children, and expecting mothers, for good work, nourishment, and shelter, for our health and restoration of health, for parents who pour their lives into the children and children who honor their parents, growing in grace and truth, for funds that allow us to consider expanding our facilities, for the far-reaching work of Theophilus and his new executive director, for answered prayers, many that we rejoice in, others that we have found difficult to understand, but we accept them from your wise hand. For our country that, despite its problems, allows us to freely worship you today. For our city, filled with churches and ministries that spread your mercy. What a great blessing, Father, that you tell us to bring all of our cares and needs to you in prayer. And so we bring our needs and those of family, friends, brothers and sisters in Christ to you now individually. And now, Father, we pray together as one, as you taught your disciples to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.